this is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, police departments are under pressure to provide officers with more training on how to interact with people who have disabilities. We'll hear if the pressure is spurring any changes. Plus, we learn about a group of women who broke through early gender barriers in broadcast journalism. They really helped define the sound as NPR was taking hold across the nation. And we get an update on COVID-19 outbreaks in Colorado schools. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Two Denver police officers have been suspended without pay after city officials said they used excessive force during racial justice protests last year, sparked by the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The Denver Post reported one officer received a 10-day suspension for firing pepper balls three times at people who did not pose a threat. The other was suspended for six days for using pepper spray on a woman sitting in her car. The police union president says young officers with no experience with large protests were deployed to handle five days of demonstrations, sometimes working for more than 20 hours a day. Police departments across the country are under pressure to change following several high-profile cases like George Floyd and the recent police shooting of Andrew Brown in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. In Loveland, body camera footage showing the violent arrest of a woman with dementia has caused an uproar in the community. And it has shifted the focus on police training standards for encounters with people with disabilities and dementia. KUNC's Lee Patterson has more. In a large, quiet meeting room at police headquarters this week, Police Chief Robert Tyser listened while Loveland resident June Dreith politely explained why she thinks he should resign. I think the problem here is that your credibility has been so damaged. She was one of a handful of citizens speaking during a police citizen advisory commission meeting. I have been talking to a lot of elderly people in my neighborhood, especially women. They are seriously afraid of the police department. Dreith is referring to body camera footage released mid-April, showing the violent arrest of Karen Garner, a tiny woman with dementia. Ma'am, please stop. Garner had just tried to leave a Walmart store without paying for $14 worth of merchandise. Afterwards, a police officer wrestled her into handcuffs. No, 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 on the ground, stay on the ground. And then forced her into the vehicle. Garner since filed a federal lawsuit alleging they used excessive force and fractured and dislocated her shoulder. The incident has led to an increased focus on getting officers trained on how to interact with people who have dementia. So there are very subtle cues that an officer should be trained to pick up on. That's Kelly Osthoff with the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado. She's run trainings for police departments across the state, including Greeley and Fort Morgan. And she says they've been getting a lot of calls since the Garner video came out. There are basic things that people can look out for, such as exaggerated confusion, the inability to answer very basic questions. The Loveland Police Department requires training on mental illness, crisis intervention, and autism. Here's Chief Tyser. Our training currently in the past present is always to make sure our officers are up to speed on as much training as they can on how to interact with people in crisis, interact with people who may have mental health uh, issues. But until recently, they did not require training on dementia specifically. When the Alzheimer's Association called last month to offer it, Loveland PD agreed. 
The issue, though, extends far beyond one police department. Around 76,000 Coloradans have Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common cause of dementia. That number is expected to increase by 20 percent over the next four years. These interactions happen. They're frequent. They're going to become more and more frequent. And with the proper knowledge, compassion and training, hopefully they can go better. A bipartisan group of lawmakers hope so, too. Even before the Karen Garner video came out, they were working on a bill to improve how first responders interact with people who are disabled, including those with dementia. The legislation would create a commission to recommend new training standards. Right now, the basic academy curriculum requires a minimum of two hours of training on how to interact with people with special needs. House Bill 1122. Senator Coker. During a recent committee hearing, Democrat Chris Kolker explained that people with disabilities are more likely to be victims of crimes and to be killed by first responders. This is unacceptable. Officers are simply not trained properly in interacting with those who have disabilities. The bill is making its way through the legislature and is likely to pass. During the police accountability meeting earlier this week, Loveland resident Dawn Kirk told Chief Tyser she's not sure that any amount of new training is going to help change the behavior of police officers. The question is how do you make sure that people act according to the training that we pay for? How are you holding your people accountable? Starts with training, accountability, supervision, doing the right things. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Loveland PD has not yet set a deadline for when officers need to complete the new dementia training. The district attorney's investigation into the Karen Garner incident is ongoing. Lee Patterson, KUNC. Department data from the end of April shows that COVID infections and hospitalizations have been on the rise. That's despite vaccination rates going up across Colorado, with just over 40 percent of those eligible now fully vaccinated. And the recent spike in cases appears to be driven, at least in part, by outbreaks at K-12 schools. Many kids around the state return to some level of in-person learning at the beginning of the year. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, roughly one quarter of all cases reported the week of April 25th are children under the age of 19. Here with more on what's going on is Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. As we just mentioned, outbreaks uh, at businesses and other places, including healthcare facilities, are up in general, according to the CDPHE. That's likely because more things are just reopening around the state. But outbreaks at K-12 schools were up 26 percent between just April 7th and April 28th. Is there a sense of why this is happening at schools? This is a hard question to answer. Uh, when we talk to public health officials, they will say that they do see some evidence of transmission in schools. At the same time, kids are engaging in a lot more social activities as more adults are vaccinated. A lot of adults are relaxing their own precautions, but then if they're you know, socializing with other families, you have unvaccinated kids socializing together. We also have seen some of the precautions around sports and extracurricular activities relax. And so it's hard to pin it on just one thing, you know, but kids are in school more than they were in the fall. And our case rates in the community are still pretty high. We have sort of late September, early October 
case rates in the community, despite the sense that some people have that, that oh, COVID is over. And in fact, it, is, it isn't over yet. And I think that's, that's part of what we're seeing here. We know that schools had a whole host of safety guidance that they implemented, including mask wearing, hand washing, cohorting. I'm wondering how schools are responding to this recent data. I don't think there's been um, just one type of reaction. One thing we saw is a coalition of a dozen school districts. Uh, the superintendents wrote to the state asking them to relax quarantine guidelines. Their response to the rising cases was that quarantine is becoming very disruptive. We don't actually think there's a lot of transmission and we would just like to operate more normally. We are also seeing some schools kind of tighten up on some of the practices that they had in the fall, but that had maybe relaxed as folks had just gotten more used to being together. So for example, at my own kid's school, we've had more reminders come home to parents of, hey, even if your kid has a very mild symptom, please keep them home. And they also um, reinstituted um, some cohorting policies on the playground that had been relaxed. And, and just to be clear, I don't think this is because they think there's a lot of transmission on the playground, but they want to make sure that they know who is interacting so that if there is a case, they can respond appropriately. And, you know, and then we all also are seeing um, some schools are shifting kids remote in response to a rise in cases where maybe they're not being mandated to do that by the health department, but they want to kind of cut that spike off and contain it so that kids can come back and do some of those end of year activities at the end of May. Because I think now some people are worried that if a class has to quarantine next week, they could be missing graduation, final exams, some of these important moments for kids. So the thought is to get them at home now, have them be isolated so that everyone can come back feeling a little safe for graduation. That's right. Erica, I'm wondering how does what's happening in Colorado uh, stack up to what we're seeing in other states? Are you aware of other states grappling with an increase in outbreaks in schools? Um, certainly an increase in cases among children seems to be a nationwide trend. And I think Partly that reflects that we are seeing after cases came down significantly from the winter, as things have opened up, we have seen an increase in in many states and we don't have, um, we are not yet at the, the elusive herd immunity. And so as typically we see when cases go up in the community, cases also go up among children, whether they're contracting that at school or contracting it at home or contracting it in a social setting, these do tend to sort of come together and then go down together. And again, as we do see more adults being vaccinated, you would expect that the remaining cases, that there would be a higher percentage of them among young people. This may be a residual effect of the pandemic. The number of kids applying to attend Denver Public Schools preschool and kindergarten this coming fall was down more than 20 percent. What is behind this decline? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I think we see a probably a combination of factors, you know, one of which might be sort of ongoing concern about, about whether school is safe for their child. But it could also be that parents are less engaged with the school system. They weren't able to visit schools and tour them and think about the choices that they wanted to make for kindergarten. And so one of the things that we'll be watching is whether this really is an increase in disengagement with the public school system where people are maybe making other choices. Kindergarten is not mandatory in Colorado. 
we could also have seen families leave the metro area because of job losses and maybe move back to other states or other parts of Colorado where they have family. And so they're not physically here to enroll their children. But we could also see that that these children do show up in August when the parents have had more time to to realize, oh, hey, this is happening. And so in that in that regard, it then becomes a planning and a budgeting challenge for the schools to to not know who's coming. And might there be implications more long term if the decline is due to things like um, people deciding to homeschool their kids? Absolutely. I mean, our schools in Colorado are funded on a per pupil basis. And so if families choose not to put their kids in the public school system, there will be less money allocated to those schools. And so they'll have to educate the remaining children with with fewer dollars. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's not at all unusual now to find women in almost every position in media. We hear and see women reporters, analysts, anchors, producers, and more rarely in executive positions. Of course, it wasn't always like this, but many people today may not be aware of how very important a group of women in the early days of NPR were in getting to this place. As NPR celebrates its 50th anniversary this week, it's a great time to remember and celebrate the so-named founding mothers who charted new trails, opened doors, left ladders up behind them, and are part of broadcast history. Lisa Napoli is a journalist and the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, a new book about the founding mothers. And she joins us now. Welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much for having me. You almost don't have to say their last names, but I will. Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg, Koki Roberts. Why are they referred to as the founding mothers? Well, Susan Stamberg really is the founding mother because she was the first female co-host of All Things Considered about a year or so after it started in 1972 is when she went on the air. But she generously extended it to the other women whose names you just mentioned, because all four of them really were pioneers in the 1970s as NPR was coming up. And they really helped define the sound as NPR was taking hold across the nation. Of course, there were many people behind the scenes, but those women defined the sound. So Susan just sort of cheekily started calling them that. The story of their careers really begins in the early 60s and then, of course, continues through the 70s um, with NPR. What was the landscape of broadcast media like? It was incredibly hard for women to get jobs at any level in the media, uh, particularly if they wanted their own byline or to do what you do, have your voice on the radio. It just wasn't allowed. Most of media at that point, and by media, we mean at that point, television news and some limited radio news was controlled and fronted by men, usually white men. Uh, It was really difficult for women generally. It wasn't just in broadcasting. I mean, this was a time when ads were just beginning to not be segregated, black, white, men, women. If, if a woman got married, it was very difficult for her to factor her 
income into a mortgage application, say, or to get her name on a bank account if she wasn't married, because it was seen that women were always going to go get pregnant and, and leave their jobs or be told to leave their jobs. So the world was just completely different. And that was reflected in the media that we consumed. And then along came National Public Radio, which set out to do things a little differently. It was kind of chartered with this mission to serve people whose needs were woefully underrepresented by commercial broadcasting, as you write. That principle extended to who they hired to work there. Was that an intentional part of their thinking to hire women? Yes. And and when we say they, we have to say that it was a man named Bill Seemering, who was an incredibly progressive person. All of public radio was nothing like we know of it today. It was very small. Most stations had tiny budgets. Most of the people People who worked there were volunteers. So NPR, the creation of it in 1970 and the launch of it in 1971, created a whole new ecosystem. And this fellow, Bill Seemering, basically didn't want people from fancy corners of the universe, nor did he want people who were the same sorts of people you'd hear everywhere else. He decidedly wanted to create something that was different. So one great story of that is Linda Wertheimer walked in the door and she'd gone to Wellesley. And when he saw that, he was very concerned. He didn't want to hire somebody who'd gone to this rarefied East Coast school. But when she explained that she was in fact on scholarship at Wellesley and that her parents were grocers back in Carlsbad, New Mexico, he was on board. I have to ask, when the voices of these women first hit the airwaves, how were they received? Well, it was very unusual to hear a woman on the radio who was doing something other than talking about women's news, society, gossip, weddings and gowns and lunches and stuff like that. So to hear a woman, especially in a smaller, more remote part of the country, who had a New York accent, as Susan Stamberg did, and who laughed with abandon. That wasn't what broadcasters did. Broadcasters sounded like this. All of a sudden, you had people who sounded like us having a conversation. And that was a marvel. And some people, to your point, were not so thrilled about that. That was not what they were used to. Oh, my God, women are talking. Oh, and they're talking about important stuff. Oh, that's terrible. But of course, these women, uh, Susan the chief among them were the people who got people used to the idea that women could have intelligent conversations on the radio about important subjects. You write about Cokie Roberts, who became just an indispensable figure in politics, both on radio and TV and books, kind of normalized just women talking about politics. People would come up to her on the street and say, I've never heard women talk about these subjects before. And of course, for Koki, it was baked into her. Both her mother and her father were, were lawmakers in Congress. And so it wasn't alien for her. It was just perfectly natural. But when people would come up to the, her on the street, men and women, and say, I've never heard women speak like this, it's really hard for us to imagine that that was true not very long ago, but it was. There were some women, and I write about them in the book, who did come before Susan. Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, they were there, but they were few and far between. So in our lifetime, the idea that Koki was given a seat at the table, both on radio and on television with the Brinkley show was spectacular. It was groundbreaking. 
what was it like for these four women to to start coming up together and rising in this traditionally male-dominated field? It was such a startup mentality. It was such a scrappy place, NPR, at that time. And there were so few people that nobody had the time to discriminate. Once you walked in the door, and, and Susan and, and Linda both walked in the door before it went on the air, not in on-air jobs, but what they saw was, whoa, we only have five reporters. We better contribute. And they wanted to contribute. So in their spare time, they picked up the microphone and did stories and got on the air that way. So, you know, it was underfunded, but it was a wonderful startup where anybody who's worked in one knows it's both really, really hard, but also really gratifying because it's got that met, let's put on a show mentality. We're all in it together and we'll all do whatever we need to do to get the program out there every day. Linda made herself the consumer correspondent because that was a big push in the 70s. And then from there, she started studying up on Congress uh, and learned so much about it that she was able to go into Congress and and report. And the men at first, you know, they might call her little lady uh, and she would say, hey, big senator. And she'd playfully push back at them. And, uh, you know, she showed she knew her stuff. And that's really, in the end, what mattered and what got them the acceptance. I love what you wrote of, of the story of how Susan Stamberg found herself at American University's newly launched educational station, which of course is still around WAMU. They were seeking a producer for a public affairs show, and uh, she had to ask her friend, what does a producer do? Can, can you just kind of talk about her answer and, and what it took for her to, you know, to, to get in there and the other founding mothers? Susan had gone to an excellent college on scholarship, Barnard, and uh, you know elevated out of her family's orbit, which hadn't been an educated family. Uh, her parents hadn't been. And then she went and married a man who was at Harvard Law School, who when he got a job in Washington, you know, Susan naturally went with him and she could only get a job as a typist. And she had a great brain and wanted to use it. And this woman who got her connected to WAMU, which was just starting out, Susan said, well, I a producer doesn't take no for an answer. That's me. I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I'm going to be the producer. And she was and she worked her way into an on-air slot there. And of course, as she says herself, you know, the stakes were low. There were, the money was terrible. If she hadn't been married, she couldn't have afforded to do it. But what she got was this education in radio that people now go to the best journalism schools in the country to get. I want to talk about Nina Totenberg, too, just briefly, because she famously covers the Supreme Court. How did she change Supreme Court coverage and our understanding of what goes on? Well, she invented a broadcast style of covering something which, as she says, some people think is really boring. Um, And anybody who listens and enjoys her reports and learns from her reports knows it's certainly not boring. She has created this whole tone of broadcasting that is going to be someday irreplaceable. Uh, She's going to keep working until she can anymore. But but what's so interesting about her, Erin, is that she dropped out of college to become a newspaper reporter. She had a hard time finding a job. It wasn't that she didn't have a college degree. It was that she was a woman. And she made her way through a series of connections and and breaks to NPR in 1974, 75 is when she actually got put on staff. And it wasn't so much that somebody said, hey, you go reinvent the coverage of the Supreme Court. It was, hey, you, you're hardworking. You have to cover this and that and this and that. And over time, it became her domain. 
And she fell in love with this judicial process and, you know, arguably knows more about it than almost anybody else alive. And she doesn't have a law degree. She just studied like Linda did with Congress. She studied it and has learned it. And now she's got the institutional knowledge that money couldn't buy. I think it's important to note that all of the founding mothers are white women. In a way, it sort of plays into the NPR stereotype that the audience is built of white, wine-drinking, tote-bag-using liberals. Um, Why were none of the founding mothers women of color, and has NPR done things since then to try to diversify? To the latter question, yes. I'm not affiliated with NPR, so I can only say that as an observer, I notice that there is a push. However, as far as the first four women, I can say that what happened is that the very beginning, that founding father, Bill Seamering really dearly wanted to make sure he didn't have a homogenous staff. Who walked in the door were people who were sadly mostly white because that's how media worked back then. There wasn't a recruitment effort. It wasn't an HR effort. It was just who knew who, who came in and who got the job. And Bill did try to hire as a co-anchor, a black man, but that man didn't want to give up his job at ABC, which was a really good job, to come work for this untested place. So I always think in that in the face of the question you just asked me, if that hadn't been the case, how different the scene would have been set. But it really is, it's not a failing of NPR as much as it is a failing of our society and a gradual change in our society, both with women and with race. Lisa Napoli is the author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for all your thoughtful questions. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how a high school in Greeley recently pulled off a pandemic prom. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.